Before I pray and begin this sermon, I have a few housekeeping items I want to take care of and address. First off, the reason my PowerPoints rarely work is not Brad's fault, it's mine, just so everybody's aware. It's a user error. Two weeks ago, I accidentally sent the wrong one, and I'm like, oh. So, that's on me. Um, Secondly, two weeks ago in my sermon, I re-listened to it. I like to listen to my sermons and critique myself. And I said in my sermon two weeks ago, I don't have a money problem anymore, which is an errant statement. And so I apologize for that. That came in the context of me talking about my childhood dream of becoming a millionaire and an entrepreneur. And I said, I don't have a money problem anymore. And what I meant was, I don't desire to be a millionaire anymore. I don't desire riches But the reality is, uh, about myself and my own heart, I do believe that money is something that I probably will struggle with till the day I die, as as many of you can probably feel that too. It's a very sensitive subject, um, especially in my life and my convictions, if you've ever hung around me or or sat under any of my teaching. So I apologize for that. Um, Thirdly, obviously I was supposed to preach this sermon last week, and by the providence of God, that did not happen. I had severe debilitating shoulder and back pain where I couldn't, I couldn't move. Um, I, I, I couldn't sleep. I was actually in the middle of the night screaming in agony, believe it or not. And so that was the second worst pain that I've ever had. My, I got scoliosis and a torn labrum, and, and so my body's just kind of a wreck. And so that happened to me one time before four years ago. Other than that, I just kind of live with constant pain. And so that was... Uh, random, but of the providence of God, and by the providence of God, Pastor Mark was able to step in and preach, having already prepared a sermon, so that was wonderful. So this sermon, though, to be quite honest, is the most difficult sermon I have ever prepared. I've had a lot of time to prepare it, uh, as God gave me another week, and still every single time I go to study it, and to prepare it, and to break it down, It is immensely difficult, and I think that's for a number of factors. I think the obscurity of chapter 1, verse 17 in Jonah, which we're going to cover, which you'll see we're actually going to spend most of our time in Luke today, as this verse is quoted by Jesus both in Matthew and in Luke. Um, As well as, obviously, the the unknown of my future here at Grace Church. Um, And so there's, there's just a lot of factors. To be quite honest, there is obviously the pressure of preaching a sermon that is lighter, easier, uh, maybe you could say fluffier, more tickling of the ears to, to as we go into the vote, for people to have this, this bright and happy uh, idea of me before they vote, as well as there's op- also the opposite temptation to overcorrect that and to say, no, I'm, I'm going to do everything I can to avoid that and, and preach this way. And so that just gives you a picture of what's going on in my mind. And so hopefully this morning... My sermon is faithful to the Word of God, and it is separate from all uh, thoughts, ideas, or intentions of the flesh, but, but wholly reliant upon how the Lord and His Spirit is leading me to preach this sermon. So, one last thing. We're going to be in Luke, so I do have a PowerPoint, hopefully that is working today. And so most of the cross-references that we're going to mention will be up there, but I would encourage you to open your Bibles to Luke. We're going we're gonna to camp in Luke for the majority of the sermon, and we're going to go fast, and so it will help you follow along um, if you have your Bibles open to Luke chapters 11 through 13 mainly, and we'll, we'll kind of hop throughout the book. So as you're turning to Luke, I'm going to pray, and we'll get started officially. Lord, you are so good, so worthy of our worship. Lord, I am so blessed to be able to teach your word, to be able to stand here and give your word. Lord, I pray that that my heart and mind is fixated on you. Lord, that the congregants hearts and minds are fixated on you. Lord, that this wouldn't be about me. Lord, but this would be about you. Lord, that I'd be a channel of your grace. Lord, a signpost pointing to Christ. As I said and testified, Lord, this sermon has been immensely difficult. And so, God, I really do come in fear and trembling, desiring to preach your word accurately. And so, God, I pray that you're exalted in this. Lord, I pray that it is taught correctly. I pray that the hearts of your people are ready to receive 
as well as my heart ready to teach, as well as to be taught as I am teaching. Lord, exalt yourself. You know what you're doing. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So, continuing on, this is the third sermon in Jonah in my sermon series on Jonah. Last time I preached verses 3 through 16 and kind of gave the story of chapter 1 of of Jonah rebelling against God and then being thrown into the sea. And where we pick up today is verse 17. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah. And Jonah was in the stomach of the fish three days and three nights. And so if we remember... Jonah was on board, and he was rebelling against God. He's sleeping down in the basement, if you could call it that, of the ship. And these people are freaking out, and they go to Jonah, and they're like, how can you sleep? Someone's God is angry with us. Cry out to your God, maybe he will save us. And they said, who are you? And Jonah's like, I fear the Lord, the God of Israel. And, but what we see is, even though he testifies to fear the Lord, he doesn't repent and so he's on this ship, and these people know. They're like, "What? you're running from God? What are, you, what are you doing? What's wrong with you? And Jonah essentially just doesn't care, and he's like, throw me in. It's kind of like a suicide. It's like, I don't want to repent. I don't want anything to do with God. The last thing I want to do is go give the gospel to the Ninevites. I hate them. I want nothing to do with them. And so rather than repent and turn from God and hope that he would cause the storm to cease, since I'm the problem, just throw me over. And so the, the, the seamen, the, the sailors, in faith, and out of a fear of God, the text says, they take Jonah and they throw him overboard. They offer sacrifice, they offer vows, and they worship and serve the Lord. And Jonah's in the ocean, what we would imagine as uh, a coming death sentence. He's there to die. He cast himself into the sea to die. But the sovereign hand of the Lord saves him. The text says the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah. Not to eat him, to kill him, so that he wouldn't drown, but to save him, to protect him. Jonah was in the stomach of the fish three days and three nights. What's the point? Jonah in rebellion jumps into the ocean to die, and God in his grace saves him. You see, it is God alone who saves. God in his sovereign hand saves. In Matthew 19, 26, after the rich young ruler has this conversation with Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, you've heard it said, follow these commands. And he says, I've done all these from my youth. Jesus says, okay, take your possessions, sell them and give it to the poor. And he says, I can't do this. And, and Jesus says, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into eternity. And the disciples look at Jesus and they're like, well then who can be saved? And Jesus looks at them in Matthew 19, 26 and he says, with people this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. You can only be saved through the hand of God. Jonah is a picture of that, an illustration of that for our spiritual salvation. It is God alone who saves. And God alone saves us by becoming like sinful man and dying the death that sinful man deserves and raises again, assuring us of our future resurrection, which is proven in our spiritual new life and resurrection now. And so God uses this picture of Jonah as the last sign for the Pharisees, which we'll get to in Luke and in Matthew. That just as Jonah was dead, essentially, in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights and raised again to new life, that's what Jesus is going to do, he says to the Pharisees. And that is massively significant to us, as Pastor Mark talked about in his devotional this morning. The cross of Jesus Christ. Without the cross, without the resurrection, our faith is in vain, 1 Corinthians 15 says. And that is because just as Jesus dies and raises again, he doesn't just stay on earth, but he ascends into heaven and then sends us his spirit. Because apart from his spirit, Man can't believe. Apart from his spirit, 
man can't do anything good still. So we're in desperate need of the Spirit. So if you go to Luke chapter 11, verse 29. It says, As the crowds were increasing, he began to say, This generation is a wicked generation. It seeks for a sign, and yet no sign will be given to it but the sign of Jonah. Now, if this was the only text that we had referring to this verse, we'd be like, what's the sign of Jonah? Is it, is it the repentance of Nineveh? Is it him going there? Is it the sea? But we know from Matthew chapter 12, verse 40, that the sign of Jonah is this. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So what we're going to do this morning is we're going to start in Luke chapter 11, verse 29, and we're going to work our way back to chapter 11, verse 1, and then work ourselves all the way through chapter 13, verse 9. Because as I studied this text endlessly for the last three weeks, as I look at the context of what Jonah, the sign of Jonah happens in, and keep in mind that Luke, he says in his gospel in chapter 1, he is writing a consecutive order. He is writing an orderly account. He is writing this specifically and purposefully to teach us something. And the idea is that it's consecutive, that these are the events. And what we'll see in Luke chapters 11 through 13, 9, is that it's seemingly one long dissertation from Luke. That Jesus, although he's, he's going from crowd to the Pharisee's house to the crowd, Luke writes it as if it is one moment. And what we'll see is in Matthew chapter 12, where the sign of Jonah is, Matthew kind of just writes these things sporadically. We'll see pieces of the Sermon on the Mount show up in Luke chapters 11, 12, and 13. We'll see that the sign of Jonah is in a different order in Matthew chapter 12 than it is in Luke chapter 11. And so I think the sign of Jonah is teaching us this grand scheme of we need the Holy Spirit. And I hope that that makes sense as we go through these two and a half chapters in Luke. We need the Holy Spirit. Because again, look at the sign. Just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Jesus is telling the Pharisees that he's going to die. Well, he's going to die because he needs to die in order to atone for our sin. But he doesn't only just need to die, he needs to raise to new life, just as Jonah did. And not only does he need to raise to new life, but he needs to ascend into heaven so that he can send us his spirit so that we can raise to new life. That's the point of 1 Corinthians 15 is we need the resurrection. We'll get there in a second, but we need that. But in order to have the future resurrection with Christ in all of eternity, we first have to be resurrected here and now. So in John chapter 3, verse 3, as Jesus is talking to Nicodemus, a fellow Pharisee, not that Jesus is a Pharisee, but Nicodemus is a Pharisee of these Pharisees that we see in Luke chapters 11 through 13. He's asking how he can be saved. And Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus is like, how can that happen? How can a man be born twice? I have to go back into my mother's womb? That doesn't make sense. And Jesus answers him in John 3, John 3 5, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. And so what Jesus does in verse 5 is he makes a parallel statement to verse 3. Being born again is the same thing about being born of water and of spirit. We have to have a spiritual rebirth in order to have that future resurrection. The resurrection that Jesus had paved the way for us to have that future resurrection. But before we get that future resurrection, we have to be resurrected spiritually here and now. This is something that Nicodemus, a teacher of the law, should know. As in Ezekiel chapter 36, a text that Mark and I quote often, it's the sign of the new covenant, the promise of the new covenant. Jesus says that he will sprinkle us clean with water and put his spirit within us and cause our hearts to be regenerated and us to be born again. 
And so Jesus is perplexed that Nicodemus doesn't understand this because he's a teacher of the law. He should be well familiar with Ezekiel chapter 36. Nicodemus, you know you can't enter eternity unless God cleanses you with this spiritual water and puts his spirit within you. Hence the water and spirit from John 3, 5. You see the same thing in Titus chapter 3, that we are washed and regenerated by the spirit. That's what Jesus is talking about. So we need this new birth now. So we as the church cannot experience that future resurrection that Jesus foreshadows in his resurrection unless we have the spiritual resurrection that is able to be had because of Jesus' physical resurrection. So hopefully that point will make more sense as we go. So go back to, well, first off, sorry, before we go to Luke chapter 11, I want you to see this, Romans 6, 4. Paul says, therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in the newness of life. That's the point. Just as Christ died, we died to sin, and just as Christ was raised to new life, we now raised to new life in Christ. That's the point. That's a reality now. Then in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 13 through 19, as Paul is teaching on the importance of the resurrection, he says, but if there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. And then your faith also is in vain. Moreover, we are even found to be false witnesses of God because we testified against God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise. If, in fact, the dead are not raised, for if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins, and then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men to be most pitied. The resurrection is wildly significant. That's why when you go to Acts chapter 2, 3, and 4, when the gospel is going out, it is based upon the resurrection of Jesus Christ. This God whom you put to death, God raised to life. Christ Jesus, this man, Jesus, raised to life. That's what our faith is built on and stands upon, the resurrection. If the resurrection of Jesus doesn't happen, then we are of all men to be most pitied. And if the resurrection of Jesus doesn't happen, then we can't have the Spirit now, and we need the Spirit now. Because if we don't have the Spirit now, then we won't resurrect with him for all of eternity. So, Luke chapter 11, verse 1. It happened while Jesus was praying in a certain place after he had finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray just as John also taught his disciples. And then what we're going to see is a shortened version of the Lord's Prayer. Well, where else is the Lord's Prayer written? Matthew chapter 6. And Luke, again, he's writing purposely. He's writing this orderly account. And so he's leaving things out on purpose, and he's talking about things on purpose. And in Matthew's account, what we understand is that when this conversation happens with his disciples, it happens because the disciples witness the Pharisees standing and walking with their arms open and they're praying in elaborate long sentences using big words. And Jesus rebukes that kind of prayer. He says, don't pray like the Pharisees. And you know the only thing in all of the Gospels in which the disciples ask Jesus to teach them what to do, it's how to pray. So in Matthew, we see the bad example of prayer. And then in Luke, we see the disciples ask Jesus, Lord, teach us how to pray. Because the Pharisees are the religious leaders of the time. If anybody's going to teach anybody how to pray, it's going to be the Pharisees. And so as Jesus rebukes and condemns the Pharisees for their legalistic, self-righteous prayers, the disciples are left with this question, okay, God, then how do we pray? And that's when Jesus gives them the Lord's Prayer. And he said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins. For we also ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us and lead us not into temptation. The shortened version, the full version is in Matthew chapter 6. Teach us how to pray. Lord, glorify your name. First and foremost, when we pray, our hearts and tents got to be the glory of Jesus. If we're not praying for the glory of Jesus, then we're missing the point. That's why scripture is given to us. That's why life is given to us. That's why breath is in our lungs, so that we can worship and glorify Jesus. And so right out of the gate, he says, Father, hallowed be your name. We want God to be exalted. 
Give us each day our daily bread. We don't want too much and we don't want not enough. We need just enough for today so that we can focus and live for Jesus. Forgive us our sins as we also forgive everyone who is indebted to us. We'll talk on that later. So these Pharisees, they have this legalistic, self-righteous perspective. The irony is that God, in the sign of Jonah, uses Jonah, who's a perfect example of this self-righteous, legalistic mentality. Jonah is a beautiful picture of the entire nation of Israel. And so God, ironically, for the sign of Jonah that he uses to foreshadow his beautiful death and resurrection, he uses a sinful, rebellious prophet who is self-righteous like these Pharisees. Jonah even blasphemes God in chapter 4, verse 1, which we'll get to later. But later, Jonah repents, which is shown in his writing of the letter. Jonah finally gets it after this miserable experience of running from God and then being saved by God, having never repented, and then he goes, and the Ninevites repent, and he's angry at God. He even calls it evil that God showed them mercy. We can gather from the text that Jonah later repents. But what does God do? God gives this nation Israel over to the Ninevites just some 40 to 70 years later. God hands Israel over to their own desires. God hands them over to judgment. And what we see in Romans chapter 1 is that if we don't follow God, if we don't uh, adhere to God as being God, as who he says he is, then we too are handed over to our own desires, which is judgment. So God hands Israel over to judgment, which is the Assyrians. And us today, the judgment that we face is getting whatever our hearts desire. And so oftentimes when our lives seem so blissful and wonderful and we're just running around doing whatever we want and everything seems to just be falling into place, that's probably actually not a good thing. That's what we see in Romans 1. They harden their hearts, God gives them over to their own desires. Okay, go out, live for yourself. You do you. And you can do it all in the name of God. That's fine. There are religions that teach that. Christian churches that teach that and promote that. That we somehow think that God wants us to be our best selves now. And that God wants us to focus on ourselves. And there's this weird, like, inflated view of of self-love. And it doesn't make any sense because nowhere in Scripture do we see that. This elevation of self and our own desires. But what we see in Scripture is is a laying down of our own desires to follow Jesus so that we can live for his desires. And so if this isn't our focus in our prayer, if we're not desiring this, then we're probably being handed over to our own desires. And that's why our prayers often seem very selfish. They seem very me focused instead of God focused, instead of kingdom focused. So then what are we supposed to pray for? Look at 11 verses 5 through 13. He says to them, suppose one of you has a friend and goes to him at midnight and says to him, friend, lend me three loaves. For a friend of mine has come to me from a journey and I have nothing to set before him. And from inside he answers and says, do not bother me. The door has already been shut and my children and I are in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, even though he will not get up and give him anything because he is a friend, yet because of his persistence, he will get up and give him as much as he needs. How does the enemy use that? Just, just. Just go to God. Just keep bothering God with your request and he'll finally give it to you. Well, see, that's not at all what the scripture is teaching. Jesus says, so I say to you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives and he who seeks finds. And to him who knocks it will be opened. Now suppose one of your fathers is asked by his son for a fish. He will not give him a snake instead of a fish, will he? Or if he is asked for an egg, he will not give him a scorpion, will he? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? What's the point of our prayers in which we're supposed to ask? The Holy Spirit. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. What are we to be asking for? The Holy Spirit. That's the point. Earthly, evil fathers give their children good gifts. The Father up above wants to bless his children with what? The Holy Spirit. That's the point of our prayers. We should be desiring more and more of the Holy Spirit, not stuff. We want the Spirit. And then we see, next, Luke goes to the Pharisees' blasphemy. In in verses 14 through 23. 
It says, and he was casting out a demon. Jesus was casting out a demon, and it was mute. When the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke, and the crowds were amazed. But some of them said, he cast out demons by Beelzebul, the ruler of the demons. Others to test him were demanding of him a sign from heaven, but he knew their thoughts and said to them, Any kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a house divided against itself falls. If Satan, who is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebul, and if by Beelzebul cast out demons, by whom do your sons cast them out? So they will be your judges." But if I cast out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own house, his possessions are undisturbed. But when someone stronger than he attacks him and overpowers him, he takes away from him all his armor on which he had relied and distributes his power. He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. And so immediately after teaching his disciples to pray for the Holy Spirit, The Pharisees are here, and Jesus casts out a demon. A tremendous miracle. And the Pharisees, the religious, self-righteous people of the day, say, Satan, you did that by Satan. That wasn't God. That was Satan. You are Satan yourself. They call Jesus Satan. Jesus says, that's ridiculous. Satan's casting out Satan. That doesn't even make sense. But... I cast out demons by the finger of God, and that means the kingdom of God has come upon you. These Pharisees have witnessed Jesus do sign after sign after sign, casting out demons, healing people from sickness, and they want another sign in verse 29, which we'll get to. They want another sign to prove that Jesus isn't Satan. Jesus, prove to us that you're not Satan. It's wicked. And in Matthew, when we read this account... The next paragraph is the paragraph on the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, which Matthew teaches us blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is this, calling something Jesus does satanic or calling something God does evil like Jonah does in chapter 4, verse 1. We'll get there in chapter 12. And so then we see verses 24 through 28. When the unclean spirit goes out of a man, it passes through waterless places seeking rest and not finding any. It says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds it swept and put in order. Then it goes and takes along seven other spirits more evil than itself. And they go in and live there. And the last state of that man becomes worse than the first. While Jesus was saying these things, one of the women in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breasts at which you nursed. But he said, On the contrary, blessed are those who hear the word of God and observe it. So verses 24 through 26 is actually directly after the sign of Jonah in Matthew 12. So if you go back in Matthew 12 later, you'll see that this Matthew puts right after the sign of Jonah. Why? Because he says this generation, this current generation that Jesus is preaching to is like this man who has a spirit cast out of him and then he sweeps it all up, makes it all tidy, but nothing comes into him. And then seven more spirits come and make it worse for him. And Jesus says, this generation is like that man. Well, we're living in that same generation. So we're living in that same last days. And so what we see is that this generation is wicked. What's the wickedness? It's self-righteousness. The demon is cast out. They have every opportunity now to have the Holy Spirit. But instead of having the Holy Spirit, they say, I can just clean it up and keep it tidy myself. Self-righteousness. Legalism. I can just do enough good works to clean up myself on the outside that I don't need to worry about the inside because on the outside I'm pure, which we'll get to in a little bit. Cleaning the outside of the cup instead of the inside of the cup. So these Pharisees are so fixated on the outside. People in today's generation are so fixated on the outside. The church has more or less become a a social club where we're just more moral than the rest of the world maybe. And, and Paul or Matt Chandler calls this moralistic therapeutic deism. And according to Albert Muller, he says this is what moralistic therapeutic deism is and teaches. It consists of beliefs like these. It should be on the slide. A God exists who created and ordered the world and watches over human life on earth. God wants people to be good, nice, and fair to each other as taught in the Bible and by most world religions. The central goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about oneself. 
God does not need to be particularly involved in one's life except when God is needed to resolve a problem. Good people go to heaven when they die. That's moralistic, therapeutic deism. And if you read that list carefully, that looks like the modern American church. And and nobody would look at this and bat an eye at it. That sounds good, even. Yeah. Isn't that Christianity? Far from it. This is legalism. This is self-righteousness. This is, I want to live my life in my own desire, in my own strength, for my own passions and pleasures. Apart from Christ, I don't need him. I'm only going to call to him when I get myself in a really sticky situation, and then hopefully he'll rescue me. Because after all, God wants to give me all the desires of my heart, right? Wrong. God wants to align your desires with his desires. He wants us to be dependent upon his spirit. And what we see is that these Pharisees, they're so wicked, they're so evil, they don't want to repent and follow Jesus. They want to live their life. Not God's life for them. They want to live their life. So if you go back to Luke chapter 3, I'll show you this. In Luke chapter 3, John the Baptist is baptizing people. And in verse 7 that says the crowds are coming to him. And what we know from Matthew is that the crowds are the Pharisees. And so the Pharisees come to John, and John says to him, you brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. Therefore, bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham for our father. For I say to you that from these stones, God is able to raise up children to Abraham. Indeed, the axe is already laid at the root of the tree, so every tree that does not bear good fruit, i.e. repentance, is cut down and thrown into the fire. You know who didn't get baptized that day? The Pharisees. Because they wouldn't repent because they didn't think they needed to. They've been living according to the law. They don't need to repent and be baptized. They're good. They're the most righteous people in the land. And Jesus condemns them, just as John the Baptist condemns them here. So if we think to ourselves, and we don't think to ourselves as, as Pharisees, we don't, we don't think that way. But if we're being honest with ourselves, sometimes we think, well, that guy needs Jesus more than I do. Or that guy really needed Jesus in his past. He was wayward. But I grew up in the church. I'm not that bad. I don't really need Jesus. I kind of got things figured out on my own. I'll take the fire insurance to get out of hell one day. But I really don't need Jesus here and now to guide my life. But what we see continuing on in John the Baptist is that that's not ever the understanding that these people had. Believing in Jesus Christ was not just a future reality where you escape hell one day and get to be in heaven. Believing in Jesus Christ changed your life immediately. And it was a continual process from from the day you believed until the day you died. That's why in, in verse 10 it says, And the crowds were questioning him, Then what shall we do? If all they needed to do was repent and that's it and be baptized, then they shouldn't be asking this question. But John gives them very specific instructions. He would answer and say to them, The man who has two tunics is to share with him who has none, and he who has food is to do likewise. And some tax collectors also came to be baptized, and they said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than what you have been ordered to. And some soldiers were questioning him, saying, And what about us? What shall we do? And he said to them, Do not take money from anyone by force, or accuse anyone falsely, and be content with your wages. Three different groups of people he gives three different sets of commands to. The point is, okay, we need to read this and then go do that, and then we can get salvation. That's not the point. The point is, if you believe in Jesus Christ, your life will be changed, and you'll live differently. Like one of these people groups that was addressed are the tax collectors. Flip over to Luke chapter 5. Verse 27. After that he went out and noticed a tax collector named Levi sitting in the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. Levi is Matthew. A tax collector that Jesus says, follow me. And he left everything behind and got up and began to follow him. You see, if we follow Jesus, our life is going to look different, continuing on. And Levi gave a big reception for him in his house, and there was a great crowd of tax collectors and other people who were reclining at the table with him. The Pharisees and their scribes began grumbling at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered and said to them, It is not those who are well who need a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. You see, Matthew otherwise known as Levi, the tax collector, he knew that he was a sinner. That's why he left that entire life behind to follow Jesus. He wasn't just getting a little bit of Jesus, enough for salvation, but he was going to continue on uh, just 
messing people over as a tax collector. He's going to stay that path. He's like, it's, it's good. I'm covered by God's grace. But he recognized, I need Jesus. I need to follow Jesus. What Jesus says is what's most important. So he follows Jesus and the Pharisees are there again. Why are you sitting with sinners? Because the Pharisees didn't see themselves as sinners. And it is so easy for us to not see ourselves as sinners. Even as born again followers of Jesus Christ who are, who are saints now. We don't identify as sinners, but to remove the truth that we're somehow no longer sinners is blasphemy. We cannot find that in Scripture. Like all throughout the Word of God, we are told to constantly remember that we need Jesus. We need to be dependent upon Jesus. This is why Paul and Jesus and Peter and James and all the other New Testament gospel writers are, 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 are so clear. Be careful not to make shipwreck of your faith. Well, how are you going to make shipwreck of your faith if you all of a sudden recognize, I don't, I don't really need Jesus anymore. I can kind of do my own thing. Make sure that there are none among you who are hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Well, why is he telling Christians that? I'm a saint, not a sinner. I don't need to be reminded of that. It's wrong. That's what moralistic, therapeutic deism wants you to believe. That you're somehow good enough now. In Christ we are. But the reality is in, when Christ is in us, when his Holy Spirit is in us, he's going to continually work out his life in us. That's what he's going to do. He's going to make us more and more and more conformed to the image and likeness of Christ. That's the goal here and now. And as he does that, life is so joyful and peaceful. And we're, we're zealous for good works and we're rich in good works and we're rich in faith. And no matter what happens in our life circumstantially, we have Jesus and it is wonderful. But these Pharisees don't understand that. And it's not only the Pharisees that don't understand that. It's the crowd that doesn't understand that. Again, if you look at verse 27, while Jesus was saying these things in chapter 11. Chapter 11, verse 27. While Jesus was saying these things, one of the women in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breast that which you nursed. That is very Hebrew of this woman to say. It's the same philosophy that the Pharisees think, Because I am from the line of Abraham, I am blessed. Jesus says, on the contrary, blessed are those who hear the word of God and observe it. Or another word would be to do it. You hear the word of God, it penetrates into your heart and your soul, and now you do it, you live according to it, you're following Jesus. It doesn't matter about the physical. Stop thinking about the physical. The spiritual matters. Blessed are those who hear the word of God and observe it. Jesus is constantly trying to get these people to take their minds off of the physical and onto the spiritual. Which is why then we get there to the sign of Jonah. As the crowds were increasing, he began to say, This generation is a wicked generation. It seeks for a sign. And yet no sign will be given to it but the sign of Jonah. For just as Jonah became a sign to the Ninevites, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. The queen of the south will rise up with the men of this generation at the judgment and condemn them because she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh will stand up with this generation at the judgment and condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Well, what's the point? What's the sign of Jonah? What's the, what's the significance of the queen of Sheba coming over to hear the wisdom of Solomon? Well, it's the fact that Jonah goes and he preaches to the Ninevites. And you know what his message was? In 40 days, judgment is coming. He doesn't even tell them to repent. He doesn't want them to repent, so he doesn't tell them to repent. All he does is declare the word of God. In 40 days, judgment is coming. And that's enough for the Ninevites to repent, to fast, to go into sackcloth and ashes, to change their lives around. Now they're worshiping God and they're, they're making vows to God and they're serving God. And they're saying, hopefully, maybe God will spare us. Who knows? God may turn and relent and withdraw his burning anger so that we will not perish. And that's exactly what happened. When God saw their deeds, that they turned from their wicked way, then God relented concerning the calamity which he had declared he would bring upon them. And he did not do so. The Ninevites hear the word of God. They act on the word of God. And God spares them. What about the queen of Sheba? Well, the queen of Sheba, geographically speaking, this is the furthest possible distance that you could get in the known world from Solomon in Jerusalem. And she comes 
all the way to Solomon because she's heard of his wisdom from the Lord. It says, now when the queen of Sheba heard about the fame of Solomon concerning the name of the Lord, she came to test him with difficult questions. And Solomon answers her questions and it says in 1 Kings 10.9, Blessed be the Lord your God who delighted in you to set you on the throne of Israel because the Lord loved Israel forever. Therefore he made you king to do justice and righteousness. You hear what that is? That's a profession of faith. The queen of Sheba, a pagan queen, comes all the way over to Jerusalem to hear about the Lord. You think Solomon talked to her about the Lord? Yeah, absolutely, because she blesses the Lord on her way home. Just a little conversation with Solomon that she traveled all the way over there for. What's the significance? She wants God. She wants, she wants Christ-centered wisdom. So then after this sign of Jonah is given here, like the queen of Sheba is going to stand up and judge, and Nineveh is going to stand up and judge because they repented, they heard the word, they wanted the Lord, and this evil generation doesn't. It says in verses 33 through 36, No one after lighting a lamp puts it away in a cellar nor under a basket, but on the lampstand, so that those who enter may see the light. The eye is the lamp of your body. When your eye is clear, your whole body also is full of light. But when it is bad, your body also is full of darkness. Then watch out that the light in you is not darkness. If therefore your whole body is full of light with no dark part in it, it will be wholly illumined as when the lamp illumines you with its rays. What's the light? Christ. What's the light? Wisdom. What's the light? The Holy Spirit. You can read in Proverbs that that's the reality. You can read in 1 John chapter 1 that that's the reality. The light is Jesus. These people want Jesus. The Queen of Sheba comes all the way because she wants wisdom. Biblical, Christ-centered wisdom. We, today, should want the wisdom of God. And then we see in verses 37 through 54. I want to get through this, so I'm going to start summarizing. The Pharisees invite Jesus over to dinner. And Jesus goes to sit with them. And he doesn't wash his hands before he eats. And the Pharisees are like, this guy's not washing his hands. Mm, that's, pretty, that's pretty wicked of him. And Jesus says to them in verse 39, Now you Pharisees clean the outside of the cup and of the platter, but inside of you you are full of robbery and wickedness. You foolish ones, did not he also made the outside make the inside also? The Pharisees cannot stop thinking about the physical. They can't get their mind off the physical self-righteousness. They have these ceremonies and these laws that they're going to follow. And Jesus is like, stop! It doesn't matter. Like Pastor Mark said last week in the sermon, God has already prepared good works for us to walk in. If we're followers of Jesus Christ, we need to cease striving and simply rest in Jesus Christ, desire to know him more, and he will do those works in us. This idea of I just need to clean myself up, if I go to church to try to earn favor with him, or I, or I serve the church to try to earn favor with him, or I read the Bible to try to earn favor with him, we are nothing more than the Pharisees who are self-righteous, legalistic, and hate Jesus. That sounds insane, but that's what Jesus' point is over and over again. And if you think, well, I don't want to read my Bible, so I'm just not going to do it, you're just like the Pharisees because they just care about the outside. And we're like, no, I read the word. I hear the word. I observe it. I know God wants me to be in his word. And because I know that God wants me to be in his word, but I don't desire to be in his word, I'm going to fall on my knees in dependence before the Lord and say, God, change me. God, work in my life. I need you and I want to be consumed with you. We need to focus on the inside. That's what we're doing here at Grace Church. That's why we got a gazillion Bible studies. We want to focus on the inside. That's why when we gather, we gather to read the word and to pray and to fellowship because we want to focus on the inside. We are no good to the rest of the world if we just go out there in our own strength and do service projects or we serve this church or we make sure that it's all nice and tidy. I mean, look at this sanctuary. It's a disaster, but that's okay because our hearts hopefully aren't. I mean, come on. We're focused on the inside. We want to be in the word and be in prayer. We want to grow. If we want to be effective vessels, effective servants of the kingdom of God, we've got to focus on the inside. And that's what we're trying to do. And as we focus on the inside, that inside will pour over to the outside. And we will be the light and the salt that we are called to be. And you think Jesus' words to the Pharisees are hard? I encourage you to read what he says to the lawyers. The lawyers are a little offended and Jesus says, Oh, you lawyers are worse. We need Jesus. Go to Luke chapter 12. 
Under these circumstances, after so many thousands of people had gathered together that they were stepping on one another, he began saying to his disciples, first of all, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Beware of the leaven. They look righteous, but they're not. We can clean ourselves up all we want, but unless our heart is right before the Lord, it doesn't matter. John MacArthur says this about the Pharisees. He says, our Lord had again and again and again and again pointed this out to these people. He told them, your alms are hypocritical in the Sermon on the Mount. Your prayers are hypocritical. Your fasting is hypocritical. Your lives are hypocritical. You don't murder, but you hate. You don't commit adultery, but you lust. You sit on the outside, you clean up, and on the inside, you're filthy. It's a kind of righteousness that doesn't save. That's why in the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew 5.20, he said, if your righteousness doesn't exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you'll never be in God's kingdom. Never. God doesn't accept superficial self-righteousness. And if your adherence to the law of God is strictly on the outside, you have not only cut yourself off from salvation, but you've put yourself in a position where it won't even appeal to you. And so he's describing a wicked generation that by our standards today would be a moral, righteous, and even godly society. But they are all, but they are of all societies the most wretched because the severest sins of all is to think you don't need to be forgiven. Right? That damns. To live this life in a sense in which I don't need to be forgiven, I'm good enough. That will damn you. We need Jesus. We need Jesus just as much today and for our next breath as we did at the moment of our conversion. We need Jesus. And so as he continues on, he says this word in verse 5, But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear the one who after he has killed has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Don't fear man. Don't fear the Pharisees. Don't fear the, fear the people. Fear God and God alone. You see in Proverbs chapter 1 verse 7, Solomon writes, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. In Proverbs eight thirteen, he says, the fear of the Lord is to hate evil. And David says in Psalm 128 verse 1, how blessed is everyone who fears the Lord, who walks in his ways. To fear the Lord is to walk in his ways, to love wisdom and to hate evil. We need to be a people marked by that. And that's what Jesus does in our hearts. He causes us to hate evil and to obey him, to adhere to his word. Then he says in verses 8 through 12, this is the blasphemy of the spirit. Which again, Matthew puts when they call Jesus Beelzebul. And he's teaching the people, he's saying, this calling Jesus Beelzebul is blasphemy of the spirit. But Luke puts it here because this is the order in which it's written. The blasphemy of the Spirit in verses 8 through 12. But what he says is, in verse 12, the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you are to say. And so think about this for a moment. Peter's here. And Peter doesn't have the Holy Spirit. And Peter, before Jesus dies, denies Jesus three times. Even before a little girl. He, he, he can't live the Christian life without the Spirit. We can't live the Christian life without the Spirit. But all of a sudden, in Acts, Peter's pretty bold. He stands before the trial, about to die, and he says, yeah, that Jesus who you killed, yeah, I'm here representing him, and I'm going to continue to teach him. All of a sudden, he has the boldness of the Holy Spirit. He has the words of the Holy Spirit. That Holy Spirit will teach us, too, what we ought to say. And we see Jonah commits this sin. In Jonah 4.1, he blasphemes. He says, but this was a great evil to Jonah, and he became angry. God showed mercy to the Ninevites, and Jonah says that's evil. That's blasphemy. Again, the irony being that God uses Jonah, this sinful, rebellious prophet who even blasphemes against God, to be the sign of his future resurrection. You see, Jonah's a tremendous picture of us before salvation. God saves Jonah, not because of Jonah, but in spite of Jonah. You see, in Acts chapter 16, when they're released from prison, and the jailer's sitting there, what must I do to be saved? Paul and Silas don't say to him, well, first you've got to, you better make sure that you've never blasphemed. Their whole life has been blasphemy up until that point. You know what can forgive blasphemy? Jesus Christ, when we believe in him. It's the unbeliever who continually blasphemes against the Spirit until the day he dies because he recognizes, I don't need the Spirit. I don't need Jesus. We don't want that to be us. We need Jesus. Let us not forget that. Then you go on and you got verses 13 through 21. This is the only time where this is recorded in Scripture. And what we see is this guy, after Jesus is preaching all of this, he comes to Jesus and he says, Jesus, make sure my brother gives me the fair share of my inheritance. You think Jesus cares that he gets the fair share of his inheritance? No, he rebukes him because he's focused on physical things again. It's like Jesus cannot get these guys to stop thinking about physical things. 
He says in verse 20, But God said to him, You fool, this very night your soul is required of you, and now you will own what you have prepared. So is the man who stores up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. This man cared about the physical. All he wanted was money. And he says, you know who's going to be saved? Those who are rich towards God. Rich in faith. Rich in the spirit. Rich in good works. And then what comes after this? Ironically, verses 22 through 34, which is the same passage in Matthew 6. So I tell you, do not worry about what you will eat or what you will drink or what clothes you will put on. He tells them not to worry. Why? Because it doesn't matter what we have to eat or drink or wear. The only thing that matters is if we have Jesus and if we're seeking first his kingdom, all things will be added to you. But we know that all things isn't whatever I want. We know that all things is whatever God wants us to have. And so he ends it in verses 33 through 34. Sell your possessions, give to charity. Make yourselves money belts which do not wear out, an unfailing treasure in heaven which no thief nor moth destroys. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Where our treasure is, there our heart will be also. You know what follows our heart, our money, our time, our energy. What's it going to? Is it going to the kingdom of God? Is it going to the church? Is it going to prayer? Is it going to the word? Is it going to Jesus? If I really step back and analyze my life, is Jesus my treasure? If Jesus isn't my treasure, that's a red flag or at least a yellow flag. Let's, let's redirect. Jesus is saying all these things to get us to stop focusing on the physical and instead focus on the spiritual. We need Jesus. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And then what happens after that? Verses 35 through 48. Jesus talks about how he's coming again. And he says we need to be ready. We need to be ready. How? Verse 42. Who then is the faithful and sensible steward whom his master will put in charge of his servants to give them their rations at the proper time? It's the one who is ready, expectant, he's equipped, he is waiting diligently for his master to return, not the one in verse 45. But if that slave says in his heart, my master will be a long time in coming and begins to beat the slaves, both men and women, and to eat and drink and get drunk. Two types of people. One who is diligently waiting and expectant for Jesus Christ. And that is shown in how we hear the word and observe it. And then there are those who just eat, drink, and be merry. They don't care. I'm saved. Jesus is coming back sometime. It's fine. I can live my life however I want. And then in verses 49 through 53, we see division. He says, I have come to cast fire upon the earth, and how I wish it were already kindled. But I have a baptism to undergo, and how distressed I am until it is accomplished. Do you suppose that I came to grant peace on earth? I tell you, no, but rather division. We think, well, that doesn't sound very Christ-like. I'm confused. He's saying, because the truth divides. We divide over Jesus. That's the only reason to divide, because of Jesus. But in spirit, we have unity. In spirit, we should have unity. Jesus prays this prayer for his followers before he ascends. Or actually, before he even goes to the cross, he says in John 17, 20 through 23, I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word, that they may be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. The glory which you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, just as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may be perfected in unity, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them, even as you have loved me. Jesus, more than anything, wants his people to be united with the same unity that the Father and the Son have. But right here, he says he came to divide. Because we have to be diligent that we are following the same Jesus. Church, we ought to stop putting everybody in heaven. All that is doing is damning soul after soul after soul. We have to be able to separate our emotions with our loved ones and our friends and other denominations uh, uh, when I'm talking about Mormonism and I'm talking about Catholicism and I'm, I'm talking about uh, Islam and all those things, it doesn't matter how good they are. If they don't believe in the biblical Jesus, if they don't believe in the true gospel, they're going to hell. It doesn't matter if they're your brother or your sister or your mom or your dad. We do them such a disservice when we say, oh, I, know, I know that you're a Catholic and you've got a works-based salvation, but it's fine. Jesus says multiple gospels can get you to heaven. No, that's not what he says. One way, one truth, one life. Through Jesus Christ and him alone. Catholicism is a false gospel. Mormonism is a false gospel. Islam is a false gospel. The health, wealth, prosperity gospel is a false gospel. We have to stop. Out of love for our loved ones being like, I'm just going to be tolerant, it's fine. They say they believe in Jesus and the resurrection. 
Guys, if their lives are not treasuring the Lord, they're not going to heaven. And that means the greatest, most loving thing that we can do for them is tell them the truth. In verses 54 through 57, we see again that their focus is off. He calls them in verse 56, you hypocrites. They know the weather. They can determine the weather, but they don't even know the present time that they're in. In Matthew chapter 16, when this account is given, what follows it is again the sign of Jonah. The sign of Jonah comes in Matthew 12 and Matthew 16. It's literally the next verse. Why? Because the sign of Jonah calls us to repent and to believe, to be ready to live in the Spirit. And then in chapter 13, verses 1 through 9, in verses 1 through 5, he talks about these people who have died, these unbelievers who have died, and he says, that too will happen to you unless you repent. And then the very next story that he gives in verses 6 through 9 is about a tree that's about to get cut down. But Jesus says, wait. If it bears fruit, it won't be cut down. But if it doesn't, it will be cut down. Just like the root of the tree of the Pharisees in Luke chapter 3. Repentance produces fruit. Why is all of this important? Because death comes to all of us. And the second death will come to us unless we repent and believe like the Ninevites like the sailors, like Queen of Sheba. This generation that Jesus is preaching to, they don't care. They're so focused on the physical. They're, they're self-righteous. They're legalistic. And it's so easy for us in America to be the same way. I shared some statistics on Wednesday night that talks about the gospel in the globe. Africa is by far the most Christian continent, which, which should blow our mind. It's, it's like 56% of youth in some countries in Africa profess to follow Jesus committedly whereas only 7% of the youth in America profess to have a personal commitment to follow Jesus, or 22%, sorry, and then 7% of those only read the word more than once a week. In Germany, where I'm going in two days, 7% of German youth profess to follow Jesus, and 0% of them read the Bible more than once a week. 0%. When we go to Africa and we look at how much little they have comparatively to us, and yet they're producing more souls that go to heaven. And we want to sit here and think, but we're so blessed. we got all this stuff here. Maybe karate class and public school and private school, the, the modern school system, as well as playing sports and, and going to the movies and bowling, maybe those things aren't actually as big of blessings as we think they are. Because we have those, but the people in Africa don't. And yet more souls in Africa are going to heaven than souls in America. Why? Could it be that we're taking these things that Satan has used to distract us and we're saying, they're blessings of God. They're good. It's fine that my kid doesn't read his word. It's fine that my kid doesn't believe in Jesus yet. He'll go off to college. He'll, take, he'll make his faith his own. Not if he's never grown up in the church. He's got a really, really low chance of following Jesus. Maybe we should change our focus and stop focusing about fun and building our kingdom here. Maybe we should stop focusing on the things we have here and building a nice life for ourselves and having a wonderful family and having family reunions. It's so beautiful. And maybe we should focus on the spiritual. You want to see your kid for all of eternity? Give him the gospel. Make sure he's in church. Teach him the word. Pray with him. You want your friends to be with you in all of eternity? Stop tolerating their sin and stop tolerating their false beliefs. Give them the gospel. Teach them about Jesus. Pray with them. You want your wayward son to believe in Jesus? Spend countless hours fasting and praying for him that maybe God would save his soul. There's more to life than Thanksgiving gatherings and football games and going to school for eight hours a day. Far more. It seems like the Africans have it figured out and it seems like the Americans don't. You see, to close, I want to go to Hebrews chapter 13, verse 20 and 21. It says, now the God of peace who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep, raised to new life, this resurrection, this sign of Jonah, through the blood of the eternal covenant, even Jesus our Lord, may he equip you in every good thing to do his will. May he cause us to work in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. We need Jesus to work in us. Jesus, the same Jesus that rose from the dead, he lives in us and we need him to work in us. 
And as he works in us, we have the fruit of the Spirit, the fruit singular of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And if we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. The sign of Jonah is to get us to walk by the Spirit, to repent of our sins, to bear fruit through the Spirit in him alone. That's it. We need Jesus for our justification, for our sanctification, and for our glorification. Our friends need Jesus. Our family needs Jesus. We need Jesus. Let us be a people marked by our love for Jesus. Oh, Lord. God, I pray that your word is taught accurately. God, I pray that we would be a people that is marked by our love for you. Lord, what a sweet gift that you have given us, your spirit to consume us, to fill us, to indwell us so that we can live lives pleasing to you, so that we can have joy and peace in the hardest situations in life, and we can have patience in in times of waiting, and we can be gentle when everything in our flesh wants us to rage. Lord, thank you for giving us your Son, both here and now and for all of eternity. God, reorient the desires of our heart continually as you cause us to live for you by your Spirit, Thank you for causing this people to be born again through the resurrection of Jesus Christ our Lord so that we can live with you for all of eternity. God, cause yourself to be our treasure and for our heart to follow after you. Lord, you are so good and you alone. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.